Welcome to the Intelligent Investing Podcast, where modern portfolio theory can suck it. A student of the school of Graham and Doddsville and a clergy member of the Church of Warren Buffett, here's your host, Eric Schlein. Hi, this is Eric Schlein. You're listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast, and today we have Julian Lin on the show. Julian, it's a pleasure to have you on. Welcome. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Now, for the listeners that don't know who you are, you um you kind of have quite the following on Seeking Alpha. It's like thirteen thousand subscribers now, or something like that. For you, got for you. Yeah, thirteen thousand followers. I, I like to think of myself mainly as a very passionate stock enthusiast. I do run a stock investment newsletter uh, named Best of Breed on Seeking Alpha. Oh, cool. Uh, my, my investment strategy is I only do fundamental analysis. Uh, so I don't really do any of the technical stuff. Um, and I, I really like to focus on buying high-quality companies. Um, this means companies with strong business models, uh, ideally low leverage on their balance sheet, and best-in-class management teams. The reason is I think that most people, when they're investing, they would start with a stock screener, filter on valuation, and then look for a company that is good enough to buy but I think that you could do a lot better if you start with a quality filter where you only look at high quality companies and then from there look at valuation. And how, how long have you been writing for Seeking Alpha for? I've been writing since 2017. Okay, cool. That's awesome, man. And how, how did you, like, what, what had you want to start writing and, and, you know, doing that publicly? Great. It's a, I mean, so, it's a, lot, it's a lot of work. I mean, what you, I, it's like props to you because it takes a lot of time that stuff it does and i really love it i think that's really really the reason um yeah. when i started reading about investing i just kept reading kept learning from buffett from uh philip fisher from pat dorsey that they all wrote these really nice books and I, I found that it really clicked with me it really i really enjoy opening a 10k and digging into details cool well i wanted to um I wanted to talk about the mall industry with you today. I think you have an interesting perspective and have a lot to say on it. And, you know, a lot of people, I would assert that they, when you hear the word mall, it's kind of scary these days and doesn't necessarily ring uh, with the word quality to a lot of people. And you're a quality guy and, you know, can talk a thing or two about malls. So would would love to hear your perspective on, on, on just the, the mall industry in general right now and where you see things heading. Yes. And I think most people, there's a general consensus among malls. Even if you don't talk to an investor, you just ask the average person about a mall. They're probably going to say three words. Malls are dying. Yeah. yeah. I think that's L- literally the, the words. They are dying. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, Di- dying so the key want, be, being the key word. Not malls are you even, know decline, in, in decline. It's malls are dying. Or they might say malls are dead. <laughs> malls have died. <laughs> okay. Yep. yep. Uh, so I wanted today... Uh, kind of dispels some misconceptions because there's a lot there's a lot of misconceptions but i do also want to discuss the truths because there is it is a struggling sector but i think that it's not struggling for the reasons that people think it's struggling and the thing so, is i mean you can see it's struggling i mean when you go outside some of the really really nice malls i mean you can i mean a lot of malls have gone away or you know it's like you go in and it's like empty yes and especially when people judge that they're most of the time, 
when they pass by a mall, they might see a Sears, they might see a JCPenney, a Macy's, and they look old, all right? So it looks like the walls have discolorations and there's not a lot of people in it. Maybe there says it's closing down. And then that's the first misconception. They might think that the bankruptcy of Sears, the bankruptcy of JCPenney's, the struggles of Macy's is going to kill malls or has killed malls or signals the death of malls. But in reality, that's just not the case because you have to think about this logically. So the Sears and the JCPenney's, um, I don't know, have you, do you shop at these companies? It's Sears or JCPenney's? Yes. Um, God, I cannot remember the last time I was, no, short answer, no. Right, and that's, that is the general consensus. There's right. a reason why they're going bankrupt. The reason why they're not doing well is they're, they're out of fashion. They don't do well. So when these companies, these big, big, they're called anchor boxes because they're anchor tenants and their, their space is called a box. This is huge. Their, their, their real estate is huge. Most of the time, they don't actually pay rent on those boxes. They actually own the real underlying real estate to that box. So when they go bankrupt, it's not like these malls lose rental income directly from these two going under. And more importantly, when these boxes go empty, they could be replaced. So previously, they were doing so bad that they went bankrupt. But these malls, they could buy back these properties, redevelop it, earn 8% unleveraged cash flow yields on it. Basically, if they put $100 million into redeveloping it, they expect to get $8 million of rent back. And they're going to bring in tenants like restaurants, movie theaters, uh, fitness clubs, more retail concepts, all, all new tenants that drive a lot more foot traffic. So it's ironic. Most people, they will see a Sears and JCPenney's. They'll think that they're going bankrupt. This hurts the malls. But in reality, these tenants going bankrupt helps mall because they're able to be replaced with something much better. Right. That makes sense. That makes sense. So what And what had you want to start researching more into malls? Was it just that there was a general narrative that malls were dead or dying and you thought maybe there's an interesting place to look? Or how, how did you come about your interest in this? So there's a saying in investing that uh, extreme pessimism makes opportunity. Mm-hmm. So because it's almost common knowledge, even among young investors, that malls are dead, this has caused valuations to drop unbelievably. Uh, for example, everyone thinks that e-commerce, basically like Amazon.com, has reduced the need for malls. It makes It has caused an existential crisis for malls. That's the general consensus. So as a result, these stocks, they're selling as if they're going to have secular declines and basically bankruptcy. Well, what do you, what do you say to someone who would say, "Well, I don't need to go to a mall anymore because I can buy all the stuff on Amazon." I mean, isn't there some truth to that? There is, and so there is truth and misconception with the e-commerce argument. So there's truth that, uh, for example, at GameStop, I would say not to pick on GameStop, but I would say they're the ultimate example of a company that e-commerce hurts a lot because mm-hmm. they're basically a middleman. They're able to sell uh, video games maybe at the same price or more expensive. Uh, if you could buy it online, have it shipped to, your, shipped to your home or have it downloaded, why would you make the trip to a GameStop? 
there's no value add from that brick and mortar location. So there's definitely a lot of tenants that have suffered through the e-commerce. So I think but at the same time, there's a lot of things that you don't want to buy online. You still can't buy clothes online. Uh, maybe if we if we say most men are not fashionable, men tend to be okay buying clothes online just because we know our fit. But a lot, I would, I would say a lot of women. And there, and there's 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 yeah. quite a few um, companies, you know, where you can buy something and try it on. If you don't like it, you send it back. There's that too. Right. I mean, uh, obviously, it's not as convenient potentially as say going into a dressing room and just you know leaving the clothes in there if you don't like it. Right. I mean, that's the convenience argument. Yeah, it's not as convenient for both sides. Uh, from the perspective of the retailer, they end up paying a bit more for shipping. Yep. And from the perspective of the consumer, they would have to go to the FedEx, go to the UPS to return it. Which is pretty much more annoying than the mall sometimes. <laughs> yeah, and those don't have that feeling, right? You, yeah. you, you need to have that feeling to buy. But when you're online for clothes, it, it's, it's a little hard to want to buy stuff. So there's yeah, a lot I don't, of I don't really buy clothes online. Yeah, clothes are hard to buy online, although clothes have been hit by e-commerce because of the price competition and and a lot of self-inflicted wounds. Uh, for example, a lot of when I went to Banana Republic this past weekend, mm -hmm. it, it's weird, but the same item was 10% cheaper on their own website online. So I will call that a self-inflicted wound where why is Banana Republic selling items cheaper on their own website? That's, why, and why, that's gonna hurt. why is that? Why would you do that? It's, it's not very smart because they actually lose more money when they have to pay for shipping. Right, too. right. And you're taking people out of your store. I mean, once yeah. you, I mean, once you think, um, and I'm just, I'm just saying this as someone who's like kind of a layman when it, when it comes to just how I'm thinking about this. I have no data to back this up, but I would think if you can get people into your store, there's a higher likelihood they're going to buy more. I mean, I can, I just know anecdotally, I mean, at the amount of times I've gone in to a Nordstrom rack, right. To like say buy a shirt or, you know, I, I bought some sweatpants the other day in a Nordstrom rack. Oh, but then I also bought a new pair of sunglasses and I ended up buying like some socks. Wasn't planning on buying socks there. I went to buy a shirt and if I was doing it online, I, I never would have bought the other stuff. So I yes, feel like there would I, be advantage, advantageous to have them in your store. Definitely. Right? I, I know it as the Costco effect. I do that when we go to Costco. And they do it. I mean, they do it yeah. very intentionally. Right? You have to walk all, like, if you want to get the rotisserie chicken, you have to walk all, or even when I buy meat. I mean, that's pretty much all I buy at Costco. And I have to walk all the way to the back of the store and pass, you know, all these other tempting, tempting goodies before I can get my steak. <laughs> And then before you uh, before pay the you... register, you have to pass the snack section. Ah, uh, yeah, no shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think there's a recent IPO by Casper. They're the, yep, the mattress, mattress in a box. Yep. Yeah, I think they had a they had a statistic that said brick and mortar locations lead to seventy five percent more sales or growth. Uh, don't quote me on that, but they had something along those lines. Because remember, Casper used to be a online only retailer but they're actually aggressively yeah. expanding their brick and mortar presence because they believe that it will lead to more aggressive growth that's interesting that's in, that's very interesting yeah it's very contrary to the common narrative that we don't need brick and mortar right? yeah so would, these, yeah so would you say it's not that that amazon's changed the game like 
there's there have been permanent maybe permanent fundamental shifts but it's not that the industry is dead it's just changed definitely there's there are fundamental shifts but the fundamental shift is not as simple as saying malls are dead and will die it's more that a lot of tenants are not necessary which will reduce foot traffic in the malls but they need to be replaced with more compelling experiential concepts and that's that's the future right definitely uh, and this is evidence when you look at some of the bankruptcies that's been happening recently. Uh, you, you look at like uh, Things Remembered or Papyrus, uh, Sugarfina or Forever 21. Mm-hmm. A lot of these concepts, they're not, they don't, when, when you think about why they went bankrupt, it's not really because of e-commerce. A lot of them, you just, you don't have a reason to go in anymore. Or maybe they were out of fashion. I mean, I can't remember the last time I went to Forever 21 to shop for anything. It's been it's been forever. <laughs> uh, and, but now it comes to the opportunity. Yep. So, sure, malls are pressured all across the board, but in reality, they're not all pressured equally. So, everyone, when you have in your neighborhood, you have several malls. You're not in general. You're not going to only have one mall, and you're going to be able to see there's a high quality mall. And there's a lower quality mall. So yep. we tend to judge the quality based on the tenant sales per square foot. It's not a perfect measure, but it lets you see the gauge to profitability of the tenants. So a higher sales per square foot will have a higher quality because they could afford higher rents. It also means that they're performing better. There's more foot traffic. There's more sales. What What are some of the, like, the experiences that are starting to get created in malls that are bringing people back in in my experience because uh we like to go to the mall very often it tends to be restaurants it tends to be bringing more dining okay. to the mall because after you dine you're going to be full you're going to want to walk around and the mall is very convenient it's right there so after you eat you walk uh besides besides uh dining you're also going to have fitness clubs like the gym they're actually bringing I think it's lifetime fitness. We're gonna you're gonna start seeing lifetime fitness pop up in malls nearby. Uh, that's something new. You, you probably would have never thought about working out at the mall. You're also gonna see a lot of mixed use besides fitness, like office space. You're also gonna see a lot of residential, uh, multifamily apartment, hotel units by the mall. These okay. are all the different uses for replacing like a Sears or a JC Penney. Interesting. Interesting. So let's 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 talk about a few. Um, unless there was anything you want to say, I think it would be kind of cool to maybe talk about a few um, investment ideas. You know, things that you've looked at that you think might be interesting. Unless there was anything first you still want to discuss about the industry. Sure, we'll definitely uh, get to the picks. Um, okay, but first I want to kind of explain uh, the truth in the mall. Yes, that's right. That's, right. Please, so go ahead. Um, and before we talk about that, let's talk about. Um, what is a high quality mall and what's a low quality mall? So, okay, yeah, uh, you can what think you... about it in terms of class A, class B, class C. Mm-hmm. And class A is the cream of the crop. That's the highest quality. These are the malls that tend to do very well. It's, you, when you're in your neighborhood, you'll and just just explain always... explain to the listeners how you would distinguish between a class A and class B mall. Sure. So, from the p- viewpoint of a 
common person. It's the mall that has sold out parking lots. It's the one that still has foot traffic on a non-holiday. It's on the weekend. It's very packed. That's a Class A mall. From a fundamental perspective, it's the one where the tenants have 500 sales per square foot or higher. So anything below is going to be more Class B, but anything higher will be Class A. And then the higher you get, you could get to like A+, A++. So these malls, they, while they are impacted when like a papyrus goes out of business, because the papyrus in a Class A mall will also go out of business, they they still are doing very well. And you, you can verify this by just going to the Class A mall on a weekend. And the reason why they do well is because these malls, they're basically town centers. They're, they're one of the more important locations uh, for things to do for people in a town. So... So the idea is if you invest in these class A malls in the long term, they, they should still have plenty of relevance. So here's the truth about what is going on in the mall sector is that you, you've probably heard a lot about store closures, about bankruptcies. It is very true that these hurt rental income because mm-hmm. when the store closes, you lose that rent. Uh, perhaps the store might pay a termination fee in that case you didn't lose too much rental income, but when they go bankrupt, that's when you just lose all the rent. So when a big tenant goes bankrupt, there's something called co-tenancy cost, which means that when occupancy goes down, the landlord has to pay a fee to the other remaining tenants because lower occupancy negatively impacts their, their financials. So you'll, I mentioned lost rents. And when you replace these long-term tenants with a temporary tenant you you have to pay you have to accept much lower rents these temporary tenants end up paying at most at most 50 percent of the previous rent so there's a huge financial impact when all these stores are closing and all these retailers are going bankrupt and now the perception the reason why these small stocks trade so low is that people think that all these store closures and declining occupancy will lead to further vacancies. So kind of creating a death spiral. So more vacancies lead to more store closures, which lead to lower vacancy and so forth. And now let's talk about the bullish thesis for the high quality malls. So I, I, my thesis is that for high quality malls, this is a short term issue. So mm-hmm. if you have a papyrus and not to pick on papyrus, uh, if you have a papyrus that is you, you do know though, like they are actually closing a lot of their stores. Papyrus. Yes, and that's okay. the reason. Okay. Uh, it, it's it hits closer to home for me because uh, me and my, me and my wife really like papyrus, so we were very sad that it's actually completely going bankrupt. Did you know their online store is also going bankrupt? They're actually closing everything. Oh, really? That's not what they told me. Lies. They lied to me. They, they, At least on the they, news. <laughs> they told me when I went there because I was there literally a few weeks ago because I I was walking by in Philadelphia. And it says like 50, 60% off like everything in the store. And there was actually some cool stuff that I got out there. But um, the I said, oh, you guys are closing for good. I, I, I always thought it was kind of a cool shop. And they said, well, no, we're going to be closing like every single one of our um, storefronts. But we're still going to be doing some like wholesaling stuff. We're still going to do some online stuff. So we'll still exist. It'll just be in a different form. That's what they told me. Interesting. And fun fact, the papyrus near our place is actually 90% off. They're really trying to get everything out. Um, 
I, I guess maybe the source I had was incorrect. Or maybe or the maybe source I had was incorrect. I mean, it was just, you know, it was a woman working at the store. <laughs> so maybe maybe that's what she was told. I, who, who the hell? Anyway, it doesn't matter. But One of us is correct. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that with a high-quality mall, if a papyrus goes bankrupt, uh, there's still very high demand for that real estate. These are still trophy assets. So my thesis is that with time, they will be able to replace all of these store closures, all of these bankruptcies with new long-term tenants. They, they have a wait list for yeah. these, for these uh, spaces. So when they work through and backfill occupancy, I anticipate cash flows to come back, occupancy rates to improve, and then rents to increase. So the interesting, th- interesting thing is the bullish thesis is just the base case. It's just basically business as usual for malls. Mm-hmm. So if we were to go through what the typical business model for a mall is, uh, we can see the appeal for why it's actually they deserve very high multiples, whereas right now they're trading at single digit earnings multiples. Mm-hmm. So in general, these are retail landlords. So the revenues are very recurring. And in general, uh, real estate investment tr- trusts, uh, REITs in short, they have very high multiples. You could see currently in the current market, uh, a company like Realty Income, that's stock ticker O, it's trading at maybe 20, 20 23 times uh, real estate earnings. These are very, very high multiples. They trend, they tend to trade at a premium to the broader market. And especially in a low interest rate, it rate environment, right? Cap absolutely. Rate, cap rates are going to go absolutely. down. Absolutely. Because especially since in a lower interest rate environment, investors are desperate for yield and real estate investment trusts pay out 90% of taxable income as a dividend. So their dividend yields relative to their earnings yields tend to be much higher. Right. Well, and, and then I, you, you can even add to that, that part of it is probably that if you can, if you can, you know, if these companies can buy real estate and pay super low interest rates on financing, um, it's going to increase the multiple as well. Yes. And that, that's why REITs in general trade at very high multiples. Right. And that also makes me more enthusiastic because malls are not trading at the same high multiple. So in addition to the highly recurring revenue base, the growth is also built in. So whereas in other industries, you might think of it as a boom and bust, you don't know why a stock would grow in terms of financials. With the real estate industry, it's very uh, built in. Uh, For example, these rental contracts tend to come with annual lease escalators, like annual rent increases of around 2%, 3%. That's uh-huh. built-in growth. Uh, when the rents expire, or sorry, when the leases expire, you have to sign a new lease. And typically, you would actually increase rents dramatically during that time, maybe about 10%. Okay. Like rents will increase 10% then. And if you have 10% of leases expiring every year, that's another 1%, right? That's yep. another 1% of growth. And then these malls, they re- they retain a lot of cash flow for redeveloping. Uh, remember, we were saying that the Sears and JCPenney's, they're getting redeveloped to bring in new tenants. They could generate around an 8% yield on those redevelopments. That's another 1% to 2% of growth. So just on that base case, we can see about 5%, about 5% of pre-tax like EBITDA growth. Yep. That's the base case. Of course, it might be difficult to return to the base case with the e-commerce and everything, but if they could return to business as usual, that's a very rosy picture there. 
especially considering the valuations. Right. Yeah. I mean, the market is not expecting that at all, valuation wise. Right. I mean, if they were, uh, these stocks, they would be trading at like three, four, five percent dividend yields. But as we'll see, they're actually trading at valuations 50 percent lower, kind of implying 100 percent upside. All right. So maybe let's get to some picks. Yeah, yeah. Let's please. Let's so let's do like picks. two two. Yeah, so let's do like two companies. That sounds good. My first pick is the more lower risk one. Okay. Uh, but of course, with the lower risk, there's uh, less potential return. So sometimes, not always. <laughs> uh, or potential return. Uh, sure. But sometimes the realized return might be more. Um, so the first pick is Simon Property Group. That's the stock ticker SPG. So uh, remember previously we said that you could measure the quality of the properties based on the tenant sales per square foot. Uh, SPG, uh, Simon's uh, sales per square foot is $700. So it's yeah. well above that $500 threshold. Yeah, so I've been to a some... few other malls before. They own a lot of malls. They're the largest mall operator uh, in the North America. And I wouldn't be surprised if they're the largest mall operator in the world. Uh, Their Wi-Fi, though, primarily sucks. they own. <laughs> they, it, it does i can confirm the, the simon mall near me also the Wi-Fi. it's no like good. what's the deal it's like you want to bring people you want to bring foot traffic you can't get your wi-fi figured out come on step it up so my my theory is that they're incentivized for wi-fi to be worse within the mall because they don't want you to price compare oh but be... maybe that's a conspiracy theory maybe i mean i've you know i've never used wi-fi in the mall to price compare i've like used it because like I don't know. I want to like be on Facebook or something, but <laughs> I could see I could see that it, it could be. <laughs> um, so SPG uh, Simon, they're they're the best of breed in the sector. They for the past 20, 30, 40 years, they have been the leader, and their CEO is uh, perennially recognized as the best CEO in the real estate industry. That's a fun fact. And it's what's, what's his name? Reason. Uh, David Simon, the okay. namesake. Got it. I think he is the son of the of the founder. Okay. So Simon, they currently trade at a around a six percent dividend yield. Their dividend is well covered uh, by cash flows. Uh, the payout ratio is around seventy percent, and this company has an A credit rating, so their balance sheet is very very strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, their, their leverage is at five and a half times cash flows, which may sound high, but you have to remember that real estate inherently lends itself to having debt. Like when you think about getting a mortgage, you typically finance at 80% loan to value. Yeah. Uh, in reality, uh, Simon's uh, debt, I think it's around 35% loan to value. So they're really, really low leverage from that perspective. Yeah. In fact, uh, Moody's, they're the one who gave them the A credit rating. They said that they could take that from five and a half times EBITDA to seven times, and they wouldn't really change that A credit. So you get the idea that they're actually under leveraged. And recently, uh, Simon, they, they acquired actually another mall operator named Tobman. That's stock ticker TCO. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tobman owns some of the highest quality real estate in the country. And so now this merger will make Simon like even bigger and increase their concentration of really, really high quality trophy property properties. Uh, 
And this acquisition is quite interesting. So they're actually going to take around $40 billion of debt. That's including the debt at Taubman mm-hmm. for this acquisition. And they're buying it at a 6.2% cap rate. For reference, Simon themselves trade at around a 7.2% cap rate. Okay. And for the listeners who are not sure what a cap rate means, cap rate for real estate terms refers to um, property net operating income. That's basically EBITDA divided by the total value. So that's equity plus debt. So the lower the cap rate, the more expensive it is. Right. So as I mentioned, Simon's buying this at a at a premium to their own company. They could have just bought back shares. It's but basically like the equivalent, buy. like it's the real estate version of the earnings yield, essentially. Uh, uh, pre-tax and pre-interest uh, earnings yield. Yeah, yeah. Like property level income, so no corporate and nothing. Right. Yeah. Uh, so they're doubling down on high quality malls. They're they're taking on debt. They're paying a premium for the high quality malls when everyone else is selling malls. So you got the best breed mall operator doubling down on malls. I think that says a statement. And my fair value for them is, I mean, currently shares trade around $140. I think shares will be more fairly valued around $190. That's around a 4.5% dividend yield. Uh, And I think that's justified because they're able to fund all of their redevelopments with just free cash flow. So they're they're not even needing to take on debt to pay for redeveloping the Sears, redeveloping the JCPenney's. They're able to pay for one and a half billion dollars of redevelopments from cash flow. Mm-hmm. And they're also being buying back stock around three hundred million dollars every year. And you own you, you own shares in this company? Yes, I do. Now if it got to one ninety you know, with the same, you know, if you were looking at the financials today and it was at 190, would you still hold on and think it would be a good long-term investment at 190, or would you probably sell at 190 if, today? So I'm quite overweight because mm-hmm. of valuation and because of the quality, my conviction in the company. Uh, I would still have shares at 190, but I would definitely reduce my position significantly. Okay. Got it. Yeah, because at, at 190, the the a lot of the multiple expansion uh, thesis would have already played out. So there would be less to be optimistic for there. Got it. And where do you, and where do you get the 190 figure from? Why not 210? Uh, 190 is just a four and a half percent dividend. Okay. Yield. Okay. And, and why do you use the four and a half number for dividend yield as fair value? Sure. So I project that long-term in the next 10, 15 years, they should be able to grow their dividend at a range between three and seven percent. Okay. So at a four and a half percent yield, you're looking at potentially eight, twelve percent total returns. Got I'd it. even argue that four and a half percent dividend yield is probably still undervalued for them, considering where other real estate operators are trading at. Uh, I previously mentioned realty income, stock ticker O. I think they're trading around like a three point three percent dividend yield. So that would be like 25% higher mm-hmm. in terms of share price from the 190. Yeah, but you know, look, if you're a pension fund or something and you can own that and you get that dividend and a little bit of dividend growth, you still might do better than the S&P over the next 25 years. Possibly. Maybe. And also, many, many investors 
have tended to treat uh, REITs as an alternative to not stocks, but even bonds. Mm-hmm. And then that's a really low bar to beat at a 2% yeah, no long-term yield. Yeah, look, it's hard, it's hard to find you know, yield that isn't like extremely risky these days. Yes. Uh, but I, of course, argue that the malls are and malls are presenting well that, that, that's what that's yeah. what i'm that's what i'm saying that's what i'm saying that yes. that, that the real estate de- deserves a higher multiple in, in in this interest rate environment um all right cool um and are they buying back stock or anything like that right now or they have been they have so, yes yeah, so they've been uh so of course with real estate investment trusts, they're required to pay out 90 percent of taxable income mm-hmm. out as dividends so they don't have the ability to buy back as much stock as like Apple would. Sure. But but this this company, they have so much cash flow that in addition to funding redevelopments, and these are like huge amounts, huge, huge projects, they're also able to buy back around uh, half a percent of stock every year. Which is which is quite significant for a real estate company. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah. I was just gonna say that. Doesn't sound like a and also it does add up over time. Yes. Uh, especially when they do it every year and the stock price has been trading and uh low valuation for many years now yeah interesting um okay cool and what about the what about the other company you wanted to talk about right so so simon was as i mentioned the lower risk name that's going to be like the low leverage best in class management team uh super well covered dividend but it comes with not as cheap a valuation. I'd argue 6% yield in this environment is very cheap, but in comparison to the next name, it's definitely not as cheap. It's not going to appeal to most value investors, I think. I think the this next name will be the one that more value investors will uh, be attracted to. So the okay. name of this company is Maestrich, uh, ticker M-A-C. Okay. They're much smaller than uh, Simon. Uh, what's, for the mar- what's the market cap? Right, Simon trades at a market cap around thirty billion, whereas I think it's around thirty billion. Whereas Maestrich trades at a market cap around uh, probably like four billion, five billion. So it's much much smaller. Okay. Uh, but in comparison with Simon, their their quality of properties is much higher. So the previous company mentioned Simon, their tenant sales per square foot was seven hundred, which is already very high. Maestrich tenant sales per square foot is 800. And Maestrich also this uh, gives a property by property breakdown of the sales per square foot and how much each property contributes to uh, cash flows. That's a lot of disclosure. That's that's actually pretty impressive. Um, Because they're very proud. They're very proud of this. (laughs) And they should be. So 83% of their pre-tax cash flow comes from A malls. So 83% of their malls comes from 83% 83% of their cash flow comes from the malls that I think will not only come back from the recent uh, store closures, but it will continue to do well for decades. Okay. And then 90% of cash flows comes from malls rated B plus or higher. So whereas Simon might have had quite a bit of malls that were not so great, but on average they were very good, uh, Maestrich has malls where it's like their median mall is an A mall. So there, there's a bit of a difference there, right? And their valuation is trading at a 13, or as of uh, prices around a 12 and a half percent dividend yield. 
So that's double digit dividend yield. That's like junk, junk bond territory, uh, yep. deep value. And so maybe we could talk about why it is. The, diff- the main difference between Maestrich and Simon is t- two things, I would say. It's going to be the debt and it's going to be the dividend payout ratio. So as far as the debt goes, uh, whereas Simon, the previous company, has a leverage around six times EBITDA, mm-hmm. Maestrich's leverage is around nine times, nine and a half times EBITDA. So sure, on a relative comparison, their leverage is much, much higher than Simon. And mm-hmm. objectively, it is pretty high. But we also got to consider that a higher quality credit, in, in this case, the properties, the A AMAL properties, they're deserving of more leverage. Sort of like if you were a bank, you'll be willing to give more debt to a higher higher credit individual, of course. And maybe that still wouldn't reduce the the riskiness of that loan at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so that's that's the idea there. So they estimate their loan to value to be around fifty percent whereas their target loan of value is around 60%. So they, they do think they could actually take on more leverage just because AMOLs, banks are very willing to lend to AMOLs. And this has been a source of liquidity. So previously I mentioned the dividend payout ratio. So the 13% yield could be representative of the fact that investors don't think it's sustainable. They think yeah. the dividend will be cut. So. Based on free cash flow, it's a 100% payout ratio. So there isn't much room to wiggle there. And then remember, these malls, they're also spending a lot of capital redeveloping anchor boxes. So uh, Maestrich, because of the 100% payout ratio, they don't have any free cash flow left over to fund the redevelopments of a Sears or JCPenney's. So the way they have been funding it is by issuing more debt. So their debt is using secured debt, which basically just means mortgage. Mm-hmm. Uh, unsecured debt is like corporate corporate debt, like uh, uh, unsecured bonds or uh, corporate notes. Uh, for reference, Simon mainly uses unsecured debt. But Maestrich uses pretty much just secure, uh, mortgages. So when these mortgages come due, uh, they actually extract more capital out of the mortgages and then refinance it to like another five, 10 years. So, so that, that, that's how they're able to fund the redevelopments by issuing more debt. And I think that's where the misnomer here, um, in terms of the bearish thesis is, I think if people are avoiding Maestrich because they think the dividend will be cut, I think that's a bit of a mistake because a dividend for one, a dividend cut doesn't impact the underlying earnings. Right. right. A cut to dividend doesn't mean a cut to earnings. So because Mace Rich's debt is structured as mortgages, they don't actually need to pay down debt. They might want to pay down their unsecured debt, which is their line of credit, because unsecured debt usually comes with covenants. Uh, covenants are restrictions to protect the bondholders. They might say you cannot have too much debt. Your Your total debt has to be less than 60% of your asset value, for example, mm-hmm. right? That's unsecured debt. So, but secured debt, like mortgages, obviously don't have any such requirements. So if they were to cut the dividend, maybe they would pay the unsecured debt, maybe not, but they don't really need to pay down debt, which means that any dividend cut, let's say they cut their dividend from $3 per share 
that's the 13% yield, to $2 per share. And shares would still yield around like 9%. Uh, so if they were to save that $1 per share, that's around $150 million of free cash flow, actually. Okay. They, they wouldn't need to pay down debt with that, at least not in the long term. So that's $150 million of, ex- of additional cash flow that could be placed towards redeveloping properties. And if we assume an, a 7 to 8% yield on that, that would, inc- that would help them grow cash flow, just, just that $150 million, that would help them grow cash flow by another one, 100 basis points. So for reference, they're guiding for uh, 50 basis points to 100 basis points of same store cash flow growth this year, uh, which is its growth, but it's much lower than the base case you mentioned before. Um, before when I was discussing kind of the business as usual case, if you recall, we said it's around uh, three to 5% growth. But they're, turn, they're currently guiding for only uh, at most 1% growth. Mm-hmm. A lot of that is due to having to give rent concessions to Forever 21. Because uh, Forever 21 recently uh, has been going through a lot of uh, restructuring. And also backfilling uh, occupancy. So, But imagine if they had $150 million more from the dividend cut to use redevelopments. That, that could bring the cash flow growth, not from uh, the current 50 basis points to basically one and a half percent. Yeah. And, and that, would, that would be stellar growth, right? Uh, I don't think there's many real estate companies that are able to grow internally at a 150 basis point rate. And they wouldn't be trading at a, a 13% cash flow yield. So, so that, that's the reason why I think a dividend cut that's definitely not the bare thesis that I have in mind here, <laughs> because a dividend right. cut would actually, <clears throat> I, in my opinion, a, mm. that cash flow, that 150 million, would be better spent on redeveloping properties even more aggressively than paying the dividend. Because I mean, a dividend is nice for shareholders. Uh, one dollar of a dividend is one dollar, and that's nice. But one dollar put toward redevelopments might be worth two dollars because it might lead to multiple expansion. Right. So I think that investors actually should be hoping for a dividend cut. So here we're looking at a situation where you get paid a really high yield, or when they cut the yield, you can look forward to a better chance of multiple expansion. It's, it's worth noting that insiders are aggressively buying stock at Macerich, uh, and which that you would expect that, actually you would, you would require that when it's trading at a 13% yield. I think if insiders were not buying stock at a 13% yield, you should actually be very, very worried. Or we're selling. Or we're selling. Um, but even if they were just not buying, that would send a big signal because maybe stock's not that cheap, but that's not the case. So there's there's eight insiders, if I'm counting correctly, buying at Macerich. And over the past year, that's just 12 months, they've purchased almost $4 million of stock. And... They, they started buying one year ago. They were buying around $44 per share. Currently, Macerich is around $23 a share. So you're talking about insiders buying all the way down. Right? Yeah. That, that, what is, that what is, is sending a signal. What is, their comp, um, what is the CEO's compensation at that company? I think it's around $6, 7000000 million. Okay. Okay. So they, they are they are spending quite a bit of their compensation on uh, 
on buying back shares. And then one of the co-founders named Ed Coppola, mm-hmm. uh, just just uh, for fun. Uh, so he, he owns about 300,000 shares, but the past year he's already bought 50,000 shares. And for reference, uh, assuming he owned that 350,000 shares three years ago, his stake in the company has dropped from around, uh, it's like $180 million. Sorry, I, I think I might have referenced his stake incorrectly. He owns 2 million shares. Sorry. Okay. And then if he owned that 2 million shares two years ago, his stake has dropped from $180 million because it was worth $90 per share two years ago. Now, now his stake went from 180 million to 50 million, and he's still buying shares. Yeah. So insiders are feeling the pain. Insiders are, um, the management is very shareholder friendly, as evidenced by their high dividend payout, their high leverage. I mean, those increase risk, but those actually are very shareholder friendly, and they're buying back stock. I mean, so this is a very aligned team here. And my fair value is sixty dollars per share. That's about 120% upside. $60 would represent about uh, just about a 5% dividend yield or a 5%, 6% cash flow yield. And what what gives you, you know, where, where did, just walk me through your thinking on on, on that valuation. Like why, sure. why so I, that? I think starting in 2021 and beyond, uh, the combination of higher occupancy levels as well as more redevelopments coming online. Because remember, when they're redeveloping a Sears, they don't, even though they put like maybe $100 million every year, they don't make any money on that until it comes online, until it, it opens up. So it, it might take some time for their investment to show in their bottom line. So Right. I anticipate higher occupancy levels as well as the redevelopments coming online to help return them to at minimum 2% cash flow growth. And that's, pre, uh, that's pre-tax cash flow growth, pre-interest cash flow growth, which would, which would basically mean probably 5 to 10% earnings growth. So I think that when they return to that kind of growth level, their multiple should expand to you know, at least 15, 20 times earnings, especially since real estate companies should trade at a premium to the market. It's actually arguable that my price target is much is still a little too uh, pessimistic. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I could, they were trading at $90 just three, four years ago, and they've grown since three, four years ago. Um, but, I mean, it's good to be conservative. Do you, so think, do you think it was overvalued, though, three years ago? It was, definitely. Uh, but I think if it was trading at $90 now... it you could justify that valuation mm-hmm. based on, especially where other real estate companies are trading at right now. Sure. Of course, you can make the argument that real estate companies are overvalued right now. That's an argument I would buy. Um, yeah, maybe. But, that, that's always uh, hard to know until hindsight. Yeah. Um, at $60, you're looking at a 5% dividend, assuming they didn't raise it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, I mean, you could even say, I mean, just to give you the other view, I mean, you could even say, if you think interest rates will stay here for the next 10 years, then maybe a lot of these quote unquote overvalued real estates end up actually looking kind of cheap. Um, yeah, that will end up still being cheap because they're able to reduce their interest expense right, yeah. and keep growing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, spot on. Exactly. Um, so at a $60 valuation, uh, that's a 5% yield. If you're assuming like three to, again, three to 7% dividend growth. I mean, 
that's still a very compelling valuation even then. I mean, yeah. I, could still, I could see people buying at a $60 valuation. Yep. No, Julian, it's interesting. Um, anything else uh, regarding that? I think you covered that pretty much pretty well. Um, yeah. I mean, so I, I view, I view these malls as being very um, attractive, especially in the current value, current valuations for the market, the market keeps going up. Uh, but these two malls, <laughs> they, they keep going down. Anyone who's owned them knows that it's I mean, been a pretty, lot of pretty much any mall at this point. Yes. Uh, I think investors, they're selling a malls and they're selling all malls in general. Uh, I guess they think that even the high quality malls will not escape uh, the problems facing the lower quality malls. And I, I think that's incorrect. And so I think that creates the opportunity to take a contrarian stance in the mall sector. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I think it would be cool maybe in like six months or a year from now, um, if you ever want to come back on and kind of give us an update on things. Absolutely. Uh, just to be safe, probably probably one year. I, okay. I think 2021. Um, I mean, currently, they're, both of these names are projecting cash flow growth, even though uh, we have lower occupancies from the really massive store closures last year and the 4 over 21. That was a huge deal. Mm-hmm. Um, they're still projecting cash flow growth. Um, I'd argue that they, the multiples could be expanding this year anyway. However, I think next year is the year where uh, it's very, we should expect um, kind of a make or break because next year is when a lot of, when they've already had a whole year to backfill occupancy. Uh, you, you already have a lot of redevelopments coming online, a lot of new developments coming online. So I think next year you're going to see a lot of two, three, four percent cash flow growth from these companies. Because remember, a lot of their cash flow growth has been compressed due to the store closures. So just backfilling store closures in itself is could boost boost growth too. So I think as the growth comes back to the more aggressive levels, the you could see a lot of really big moves in these names starting next year. Interesting. All right. Well, Julian, it was a uh, pleasure to have you on. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Eric. Yeah, of course. Well, you have a uh, good rest of your day. You too. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast with Eric Schlein. If you'd like to connect with Eric for questions, comments, feedback, ideas, or to inquire about being on the show, please contact Eric at intelligentinvesting at gmail.com. So in the words of Charlie Munger, I have nothing to add.